Thanks for joining us for this latest edition of Lead.exe. Today we're joined with our special guest, Brian Kane, who comes from a diverse background of technology, leadership, and various other talents. We're going to chat with him today, starting with some conversation around uh, design thinking, some of his own background uh, related to design. Um, but before we get started with that, uh, I'm your host, Brian Comerford, and joined with co-host... Nick Lozano. How's everybody doing? <laughs> and we'd like to welcome Brian Kane. Brian, if you can give us a little bit of a, an intro about yourself, we'll, we'll start it off with that. Sure. So thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to do this with you. Um, a little bit about my background. So... Uh, I've had a dual career as both an artist uh, and a designer working with technology uh, since the 80s. Um, in the 1980s, uh, I got involved with uh, 3D computing for holography in the entertainment industries. So I was doing a lot of uh, 3D CGI uh, back in the day um, and doing that commercially. And then in the 1990s, I got involved with uh, live interactive video software internet gaming and uh, robotic software. So uh, once I learned how to do programming in the 80s, which started for 3D, then I started to do uh, more interesting things as the 90s went on. Uh, then in the 2000s, I was a creative director for a computer gaming company and did uh, UX for online commerce and finance industries. So as time moved on, I started to get more and more both into leadership roles and um, also into user experience because that proved to be such a valuable piece of making a commercial product. And then in the 2010s, uh, I got asked to teach at RISD, which is the Rhode Island School of Design. Um, and so I did that starting in the 2010s. I, I taught industrial design, film video, apparel, and digital media. So we did some really interesting work there, especially around uh, wearable technology, although I don't like the term wearable. And then uh, later I started uh, an AI design course there, which I think was the first to really look at AI specifically from a user experience perspective. And now I'm working on some consumer products, and so that's a whole different, it's a whole different ballgame. So I can explain a little bit more about that. But, so I discovered some of these what I think are new opportunities uh, using AI to make consumer products. And so I'm actually trying to put that to the test and make these products and get them to market. That's great. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, that's what I'm doing now. <laughs> well, it sounds like you uh, like to keep yourself busy. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, it's a really exciting time. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of opportunity for innovation right now. It's just, you know, in all the years I've been doing this, I think it's probably the best time for doing innovative products and especially for, for making new things that are going to be very successful in the market, mostly because the barrier to entry has been made so low. Anyway. So talk to us a little bit about that um, because of outsourced infrastructure, because of the ubiquity of uh, easy uh, design tools to work collaboratively in? What are some of those other things that you think have helped well lower that barrier in entry? Yes, as well as access to the technology. So, you know, in the 1980s, when I started doing uh, 3D computer graphics, you needed to have a quarter million dollars worth of computer or more just to do it. And now you can do, 
much more sophisticated work on uh, just a regular laptop that you might buy at Best Buy. The hardware and the software have become much uh, more accessible. Some, a lot of this stuff is free. Um, the, the chips themselves and all the components that it takes to make things have become incredibly inexpensive. And there's also a gigantic ecosystem universe of uh, free software to work with. So you don't have to invent everything new anymore. Right? So we've reached this place where a lot of these products are so commodified that your average person can get back to garage inventing for low cost and can make lots of different things and, and test them. As well as have easy distribution channels for getting some of that content uh, out in the world. Yeah, distribution is another – e-commerce is, an, is another uh, way that, of, of distributing product directly, like consumer to consumer. So there's some interesting new models there that I think are going to become even bigger and bigger. You, know, you can invent something, you can make it in your garage, and you can sell it directly to your consumer using apps or internet now. You don't necessarily need to get a deal to have your thing distributed in Best Buy, for instance. Okay, Nick, were you going to jump in with a question there? Yeah, I was just going to ask you kind of a question in general. We're, we're talking about artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I immediately think to, you know, Watson when I think of artificial intelligence. But like in, in general terms, what should uh, IT leaders be thinking of when they think of art, artificial intelligence? Do they have to think, you know, that big scheme thing idea where they're trying to build a Watson that can read all of Wikipedia and answer Jeopardy questions? Or is there kind of like a smaller area where they can kind of get their feet wet and, you know, have something that's a little bit more easier to implement? So it's a very broad question because this this concept of AI has grown to be so expansive that it's unclear what it means anymore. Um, But I'm a big fan of uh, small AI, which is what you were getting at. So if you think about if you're developing any type of software project, you can have uh, software that automatically makes decisions, and that's incredible. And they don't need to be huge decisions, but mm-hmm. if they can do small decisions, then they can be incredibly helpful to the user. However, you run into this paradox where the system is doing something unexpected or potentially doing something unexpected to the user, which from a, from a UX perspective is generally a red flag. So thinking from just from a straight UX perspective, we generally want the system to be as responsive as possible to the user's input, whether that's physical input or uh, tangible input, or whether whether or not it conforms to their mental model in terms of what you asked it to do and what it did. So when you get into something where it can automatically make decisions, there's a back and forth and the user needs to really understand exactly what's happening or else they may reject it, right? So uh, if you if you ask it for ice cream and it goes back and it comes back and it gives you the kind of ice cream that you don't like, then you're, you're going to reject that, for instance. But that doesn't mean that we don't want to not attempt to create these things that, pe- that, that can do things, that can make decisions, because that's huge. There's a lot of co- cognitive overload that comes from people that, because you have to make too many decisions frequently when you're using digital systems. There's too many options, too many choices. Uh, too many opportunities to fail. So mm-hmm. once we can make things that actually make decisions, basically, autonomously, we can make amazing things. And I think people actually are going to love this once it's done right. I'm not sure if anyone's done it right yet, 
Um, but to get back to your question, I, I very much try to, there's this concept of, of general AI, which is like, you know, it's every single sci-fi movie that's come out for the last 20 years. And <laughs> it's probably really more than that. <laughs> not only is it useless, but it's actually kind of dragging everything into a strange direction because of that narrative. So I'm, I'm a big fan of creating new narratives and we can use the design process to invent all these new narratives and new scenarios and new use cases that are really great. But first you sort of have to take that, you know, the, the, the killer age of Ultron robot, like take that whole story and throw it in the garbage and just kind of <laughs> make it go away. Cause we're not worried about Hal, are we? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, and there is actually, you know, this is something that I've talked about quite a bit. So there's the potential that, you know, AI could actually get rejected because of backlash culture in the same way that GMO has been rejected. But it's mm-hmm. got such a negative perception right now and people are really afraid. So it could reach a point where people just say, you know, no, no AI, right? Everything has to be AI free. And I don't want to, I don't want to hear about that. If it's AI, it's bad. And I reject that. And we're right at the point where that could happen. In my, in my opinion, that's because of the perception that's been created um, based upon false presentation, I think. So what are some of the things we've we got? Movie tickets. What? <laughs> I was just going to ask, what are some of the narratives of where we've got some semblance of AI in our daily lives already that could help mitigate some of that negative perception or fear orientation? Well, you mean, what are some examples of what works well? Mm-hmm. I think uh, GPS GPS is a great example of something that people love when you, you know, you put in your, where you want to go and you trust that device to pick the fastest route or the safest route or the least expensive route, whatever that is. And then as you're using it, it's telling you things to do. And we mostly accept that. And we, I think GPS has been very well received. People, I don't know, do you use it? Constantly. I use GPS all the time, <laughs> especially Waze. You know, uh, I'm assuming that there's some kind of AI behind that telling me which which path to take where there's traffic or um, you know a down tree or something trying to reroute my, my traffic in real time. I imagine there's some kind of AI behind that as well. Right. So there's a great example of where something that's making a decision autonomously for you, and and you're willing to let it tell you what to do and accept its results. Um, However, if it starts to make bad recommendations, then you may just throw it away. And, and so this is where the whole user experience thing comes into, into play. Uh, and that's just, I don't know, that's one. I think internet search is another where we generally, you know, we go to search for something and we generally trust that the results that come up, the top three, the top five uh, are relevant. Whether we consciously make that decision or whether that we just inherently trust I tend to come across things that are only fake news if they don't align with my pre-biased opinions. <laughs> That's another <whole> conversation. <laughs> <laughs> we know Google will actually give you biased results. That's why I, I always search in incognito mode when I need something um, like a general answer on something. I, I, I do that in the incognito window because it actually utilizes your, your past search history to kind of tailor the results sure. for you. Sure. Yeah. 
and, and one of the one of the ways that I tend to so I'm really into this idea of personality. And so I, what I would say is that you you want a certain personality from that experience. Mm-hmm. And I usually like to call that a flavor. So, you know, if you use different search engines, you can see that they have different flavors over time. And it's very hard to, to really be specific about what that is. But, you know, it's got a different – the word I think of is flavor. And so, you know, sometimes the more, um, if, if it feels like it's, uh, I don't know how to the right words for this. If it feels like it's overly AI, it has too much AI flavor. And I think you know, people want to back off from that. Uh, I think that's sort of what's happening with, with things like uh, with Facebook as well. So, you know, initially it felt like I was, you know, I, I'm the user and I'm doing this. And then all of a sudden it feels like this other thing is sort of, controlling my experience and, and i don't know if i like that flavor yeah that kind of kind of reminds me of like i don't know if you've called united recently and tried to get something rebooked <laughs> they have like a virtual assistant and it instantly doesn't understand anything you're trying to ask it <laughs> and you just want to get a live person because it is just driving you insane <laughs> well, and that and so so that was an experience that you remember but it was a negative experience right yes it was yeah and so these are the types of things that using design as we start to make these types of things that you know, from my perspective, I think we want to put design first, right? We want to we want to figure these things out, and it's not expensive to test many, many different prototypes and start to get an understanding of that. And that way, we can make products that are they're better for the user and they're better for the company, right? Because we want to make the things that people like. You know, and one of the things that I think is interesting because it only gets talked about in terms of technology, but really, what we're doing is we're designing characters and the people that have the most experience with that are artists and entertainers and the movie studios, because that's their business, right? They mm-hmm. make, they make stories and they make characters and they make experiences that kind of work with people on an emotional level. So I would argue that what we're going into now is this transition where everything was technology led for the last 30 or 40 years. And we're switching over to this thing where it's going to be more storytelling and, and creative led. We're at that inflection point now. Everybody has laptops and computers and internet connections, and you can buy cheap microprocessors and all the different. That stuff is becoming commodified. But what's going to become the real uh, of what's the biggest value are the people that can create these uh, types of like personalities and experiences and really know how to design these things so that they're the best. Right? If there's 50 AIs to choose from, you want the one that's the best for you. And that edge is going to be a design edge, not a technology. So let's let's talk about that a little bit for, particularly for leaders, whether or not they're technology leaders who are unfamiliar with design thinking as a process. Can you help articulate a little bit? What's the starting point for that? Sure. Is, is there a framework? Is there a model to follow? How does someone who's completely new to it become exposed to some of what you're talking about? Uh, there's definitely there's definitely a framework or a model for that process. So, you know, I, I lecture on this and I teach it. And the one that I usually used was uh, created by the uh, by Don Norman at the Nielsen Norman Group. Um, they're one of the biggest consultants out there. And it's a circular process uh, that I can send you. It's in my deck. It's one of their slides. It's basically a, a it's a cyclical process where you empathize with some type of 
condition out there that has to do with people or some scenario. Then once you've looked at that, that's an observational process. Then you start to define what you think your, your research and your product might be. Then you come up with ideas that make that tangible, but then you very, very quickly get to prototyping. Um, so, you know, from an IT perspective, uh, I think that it's uh, getting out of big upfront thinking and very quickly getting to, to creating prototypes. So I'd rather have a I'd rather have a prototype in two days that I can test on somebody than spend twelve weeks in, in meetings. Um, and then once you once you've created a prototype, then you move on and, and you start testing it. And that prototype doesn't need to really even do much more than test what you think it it's going to do with people. So it can be either fake or it can be super hacked together or it can only have that one little function that you think it is that you want to test. And you, 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 it's what I call design doing, right? So my whole thing is I like to move people out of design thinking and into design doing, right? So you don't overthink it. You don't get into the traps of groupthink or have all sorts of assumptions that you're going to drag along through your expensive, long IT project. And you get to the point where you're building stuff early to test out all those assumptions and make a lot of mistakes, right? So IT projects, because they're so big and they can be complicated and expensive, they tend to be a little risk averse, which, which makes sense from a business perspective. But unless you make a lot of mistakes, you're not going to know how to get them right when you put it in front of the user or the customer. So for me, that sort of summarizes the whole design thinking process, which is um, first it's based on observation, then you come up with some ideas, but then you very, very quickly prototype it, and then you test it on real people as soon as possible. So let's talk a little bit about design doing. Let's say that you're engaged with uh, a group of folks who they, they're very confident in their leadership for the business that they know, right? Operationally, their leadership is sound. Now you yep. confront them with some of these concepts around design thinking and design doing. How do you start to unleash where their creativity uh, might actually get stirred in a way that is potentially unfamiliar to them? Yeah. Well, so I wouldn't confront. I would, I, I always like to present it as opportunities and there are opportunities to do a couple of things. So one is to take somebody's great idea and make it happen very quickly. So if leadership has an idea, you say, okay, let's try that. And you can do it very small. So if somebody has an idea, you might be able to test that out in a very, very small way, very, very quickly. So um, it's more it's more a way to say yes than to say no. Say, okay, let's try that. You know, I don't know. Do people, it kind of reminds me of... flavored ice cream? I don't know. But <laughs> instead of rejecting that out of hand, let's make up a batch and try it. Kind of reminds me of uh, Agile programming or, or like a kind of system development life cycle kind of seems kind of similar to that where you kind of uh, iterate on a smaller scale and when you fail, you fail hard and you fail fast and you go back to the drawing board and try again. It's, it's totally tied to Agile. It's mm -hmm. totally, I mean, so many of these things, Agile is wonderful and I really love it. Um, but these things, they become rigid sometimes when they're introduced into different types of uh, work environments. So, yeah, Agile, if you can keep it Agile. Design thinking and Agile are co-joined at the end. 
And that's kind of where I was going, Brian, with the design doing comment that you made. So, you know, from uh, an agile framework, right? I think part of what you just alluded to that rigidity, um, some folks, you know, they're really comfortable as long as they're within the guardrails of a framework. Mm-hmm. Thinking creatively outside of those things may be challenging to some. So I'm curious from a design doing perspective, when you're thinking about that, is there doing that becomes part of the activity of a leadership team that you might be engaged with? Or is the doing really on you and other design partners that are? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's part of, it's part of the process. So if somebody has, somebody might have a, a fantastic idea. So you say, okay, come, go, go do it. Come back in a week. You know, let's go, go do it. Let's no more PowerPoints. Um, show me something. <laughs> Show me, show me something that works, or at, at least is is the is the first step to that, um, and that's it's it's about it's about prototyping. It's uh, it's sort of like um, if you get out of that uh, analysis paralysis and start making, and you start making, and things don't necessarily have to be perfect or work right up front. They have to they have to be good enough to test this idea, whatever that, whatever that idea is. So in terms of selling it to management, which I think was your question, I think it's a decent sell in, in terms of, you can say it's, it's low cost, it's fast, and we can test your great ideas, right? Let's, let's, let's spend time working on, on your great ideas and get it done quickly and have something that we can actually show and give ourselves a path to, to profit that's, that's you know relatively fast and has a higher chance of succeeding than putting all your eggs in one basket hoping that it works later from a prototyping perspective what are some of your tools of choice in software yeah we can start there i know you work in a lot of different areas (laughs) so for software um with javascript and all the different javascript libraries that are out there um there's in terms of ai there's uh there's there's a whole lot of interesting APIs that are available now um, from some of the big commercial vendors. So Google, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, um, Clarify, a bunch of different companies have. So you can do it free or almost free using their API. So you don't have to build your own AI infrastructure. Um, and then, uh, you know, I've been working a lot with um, Arduino kind of stuff, which is C++ and now there's, there's Python that's available on these little microprocessors. And then, you know, like on a, in a, for making physical prototypes, laser cutting a lot, 3D printing. And, um, but even because I really like to do things fast. So for me, sometimes even, even 3D printing is too slow. <laughs> I'm really not making that up. It's like, even if you have to spend a day doing that, it's a waste of time if you can like make it out of clay or if you can, uh, Use a use a toilet paper tube, cut it in half, or glue something to it. It's really about getting getting like right to the core and doing it as fast as possible. You know, the, the, the modern prototyping tools are amazing. Nick, you got another question for us there? Yes, I had a question. I, I know uh, BC has told me that you've worked a lot with um, kind of teams overseas, like multicultural. I was kind of uh, curious how you kind of deal with that, with the, you know, different language barriers and different, 
you know, cultural differences, you know, with leading a team and the challenges that come with that. Do you find anything, um, some helpful tips you have for our listeners that kind of help you get through that or um, some thoughts or ideas? Well, yeah. <clears throat> so the biggest issue is who's going to stay up late? <laughs> <laughs> so if I can be the one that stays up late, that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get people during their productive day hours. Um, communicating, uh, well, that's always a challenge. Um, try to try to just be very clear in your communications. Have a good translator if you need one. Drawings can help quite a bit. Um, prototypes also. So it's easy if you make a prototype, say, here, see, it's supposed to be like this. You don't need so many words to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's other this might may or may not be what you're talking about so there's all sorts of ethnographic issues which, which come into play when you're going to design a product yeah so and um, are we recording? Can we, yep we are can we, pause it? can we pause it for a second? while I go get, yeah. while I go get a prop? yeah go ahead go ahead let me go get, go ahead. Let me go get a prop yep go for it <laughs> <laughs> Your Bluetooth device is ready to pair. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so this is a pretty hot selling product in China right now, and it's a handheld karaoke microphone. Really? <laughs> Have you ever seen that mic or Brian? I've, I've, I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it in one of your posts. Yeah. Okay. So this is a really hot product uh, in in China and other parts of Asia right now, but you've never seen it in the U.S. No, I have not. No. Okay, so that's a, that's a great example of an ethnographic difference between cultures. You can buy these on Amazon, but they're not popular here. And so, <clears throat> the reason I bring that up is so you really need to understand your user mm-hmm. in terms of <laughs> what they want, what they expect, and the culture that they live in. So frequently, you know, if you're designing a product for North American audience. You have assumptions in your head, but then you go and you look at audiences or users in different parts of the world. They may have different expectations. So you always want to understand who, who your user is. And that's, again, in the design thinking process, that's early on. So you want to do observational studies of who your users are. Yeah, who knows why? Why, why, why? why is karaoke popular in half the world and not in the other half of the world? <laughs> well, it's really interesting, right? Because we we think of the, the objects and the experiences and the technology that we interact with in different ways. So, as as designers, we, we need we really need to understand that if we want people to adopt and uh, and get value out of the products that we're making, whether that's hardware or software. Right. No, com- completely understand it. I've, I've never seen that device ever. It's, 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 it's only if you want to really rock the house with your IT project. Hey, you know, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to go buy one of those and rock it in the office and um, <laughs> see, see how everything goes. <laughs> it, it could certainly be a way to break down barriers pretty quickly, quickly amongst, uh, you know, alpha type decision makers in any project team. That's for sure. Oh, exactly. Next, yeah, next uh, team meeting, you. making a, <laughs> making a purchasing decision. That's that's the only way you can talk is if you have the karaoke mic in your hand. Well, you, you're, <laughs> but your question specifically had to do with you know how do you manage people that are in, 
yep. in different parts of the world, and hopefully they're they're working together. And so, you know, you have to understand that you come from a certain place, and they come from a certain place, and make sure that we're all talking about the same thing. And frequently, if you have assumptions, other people might not have them. And then there's the logistics issues of, of timing and communicating and making sure that things are clear and communicated properly. And that's, I mean, that's a challenge. That's a challenge if you're sitting in the same room with someone or if you're working 5,000 miles away. No, completely agree. I, I used to be on a software development team and uh, we had a counterpart in India and we were having a development team meeting and I said, it's a catch 22. <laughs> um, and then, so I had to explain it and then I explained what a catch 22 was. And then I get the meeting notes back the next day mm-hmm. and it literally has the whole transcript of me saying what a catch 22 was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that, that was one of, one of my first experiences with, you know, a multicultural difference to, you know, kind of tone my language down or, or any, you know, sayings that I would use to try to, you know, curb those out because people might not understand them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, just as a couple of tips, if you can meet in person, I think that's great. And also this kind of video conferencing that we're doing now, I think is, is also uh, really, really useful. So it's, it's hard to, you know, when everything is text and emails, it's actually hard to understand that there's a real person there. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think, especially with the video conferencing done, done properly, um, it's a way to have, it's more, it's a more personal, more human uh, way of communicating. Yeah. And I think it also brings up a point that I'm curious in your opinion about, which is, you know, really how do you bring a clarity of ideas to the design thinking process? Part of why I ask that is because I've interacted with a lot of different uh, leaders, a lot of different um, folks who are accustomed to having their thoughts translated into um, some, some kind of factual reality. Mm-hmm. But they're, you know, while something may be clear in their own head, it's hard to draw out very clear details about what they might be describing. Mm-hmm. I've found that to be a leadership challenge myself, and I'm curious of some of your own techniques or approaches that you might apply to that challenge. Well, drawing is one. So being able to draw out an idea, you know, they say a drawing is worth a thousand words. So drawing can actually, you can say, well, did you mean this? Or did you, when you said, you know, when you said round, did you mean this or this? You know, let, let's draw, draw me a picture of that. And so that can frequently get things very, very uh, focused very quickly. Um, and then the other thing is, so this is a metaphor that I use with my students. Right? So think about drawing. So typically we think about drawing and you're just drawing, 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 and you keep on adding. And you want to flip it over. The eraser is just as powerful as the as the drawing part, right? So taking things away is equally valuable. So you say, can we get rid of this? Can we get rid of this? Let's boil it down. What What is the core of what we're talking about here? Um, and so it's frequently it's a process of elimination. You know, it's not this. It's not this. It's not this. And that lets you get right down to the to the little nugget in the center, which is the core concept that you can go and build something and prototype it and test it. Right. And, and, and the IT metaphor is feature creep. <laughs> yeah, we all know that. The feature creep. Yeah. Could do one more thing. To keep it great. Right. <laughs> but sometimes you can sit down and say, let's, we're going to have an inverted feature creep meeting. We're just going to get rid of, in this meeting, let's get rid of 10 features right now. 
until we're going to take things away until this product is no longer viable until it breaks. And so that reverse process of taking things away is equally, if not as important as making things. And if you look at a lot of consumer products like Apple's does, they used to be really good at that. Um, And that's where this, people think of the products as simple and easy to use and understandable. A lot of that's because of what they didn't do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. You know, it, leads me to uh, another set of questions that I have for you related to ecosystems. So I heard you touch on that a little bit at the beginning of our conversation here. We certainly have an ecosystem related to Apple. We've got an ecosystem related to Microsoft. There are various other ecosystems out there, Salesforce platform, all sorts of uh, examples of this. Um, From a, you know, convergence around um, some of these design principles, we're starting to see more and more tools being built into those uh, various ecosystems. What is the best way to kind of bring some of those things into ubiquity, right? So um, part of what I mean by that is, uh, you know, from a consumer base, you, you might see that a lot of folks have Apple as their preferred ecosystem. And yet, uh, in the business world, Microsoft seems to dominate, you know, what the what the ecosystem is all about. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about how that's being harmonized or if it is um, as uh, as we see more and more uh, technologies sort of competing for a greater share of these preferred ecosystems. I'm um, not sure if it's being harmonized. It seems like it's being more fragmented right now. Um, and specifically in terms of AI, it, it looks like uh, these different companies are competing. Uh, it's all black box, uh, walled garden type stuff that they're, they're competing uh, to dominate. You know, so it's like, who's going to win? Is it Alexa or Siri or, or Google Home Assistant? And they don't talk to each other and they don't really do, you know, they don't really do much. And there's, there's little hooks around the edge where you can kind of do things with them, but there's not really a robust open source tool set. I need to be careful what I'm saying because things are changing so much. <laughs> It'll be different tomorrow. <laughs> but there, there certainly seems to be a competition to, to who's going to, who's going to dominate in that space. Um, and on the other side for IT, you know, like for IT, most of the tools right now are open source. You know, most of the big tools, most of the big languages and database. I mean, there's still Oracle, but you know, a lot of the internet is certainly built on open source technology, which is relatively indifferent to you know whether it's Apple or Microsoft or Unix. There might be different flavors. Um, I like to keep my stuff in the open source sector when I can. So I tend to work there. Does that answer your question? It does. Yeah, and you you really kind of went where I, mean, I was. You know, as long as this competition, to they're going to they're going to be competing to create walled gardens. Yeah, you you see that on the internet as well, right? With things like social media, which are basically sort of walled gardens. Totally believe that, and as we're seeing, kind of, um, you know, technology be more consumerized, um, and you know, with the you know, Alexa coming out and Google Home Assistant and Siri and Microsoft Cortana. Um, are you seeing that kind of 
evolve the AI space more where people are kind of asking for, you know, to see different products that have AI baked into it, where it's not just kind of like, what's the weather set a timer? Um, Because that's what I seem to use Alexa for mostly. Yeah. So, you know, we've done some research into this, like how to, one of the questions we asked a couple of years ago is how do people actually live with these things and what's the the life cycle? And, um, and so we see that, that there's not that much engagement with the prod, with the products, or maybe they do one or thing, one or two things. Well, um, and so they use it for that. Um, There's also, it's sort of a honeymoon product. So you get it and you love it for a couple of weeks and then it sits on your shelf and you don't use it that much anymore. And response to commercials. That's <laughs> what so mine does. <laughs> so, you know, so this is a really interesting subject for me. And so, you know, I would argue that these are pro- these are solutions without problems. And these products, they're, they're being pushed into the consumer space because you've got a generation of executives that grew up watching Star Trek. Uh-huh. They're literally building their childhood fantasy in the real world now, despite the fact that it's not. People don't love it that much, right? I mean, there's very little enthusiasm at a consumer level for self-driving cars, and yet this is supposed to be the thing that everybody wants. And it's not really, but it's being pushed by a certain generation that grew up on 2001 and Star Trek and Star Wars. And they're, they're literally building the things that they envisioned when they were kids. And that's what we're getting. That's what... Oh, yeah, you're going to talk to, in the future, you're going to talk to your computer. Okay. Now that you can talk to it, it's not engaging an experience. Yeah, and I, at least for me, I don't want to talk to my phone out in the middle of public anyways. It just kind of looks weird. <laughs> Riding the subway. <laughs> yeah, and nobody wants to get in a self-driving car. Yeah, exactly. So, well, you never know. You could wind up like uh, the guy in Silicon Valley. He gets in the self-driving car, and it takes him to a container to go to China. Yeah. <laughs> again so that's why and that's why it's like if we can if we can step away from those old narratives and use this design process to like test and create things we'll create interesting things that that people actually really want um you know and (laughs) there's a long story but you know when I, i was teaching this ai design course and so i was doing a demonstration on how to rapid prototype and i put together that fish the the Billy Bass that was connected to Alexa. Mm-hmm. And we put that out on the internet and I said, Hey, you know, user testing is real easy. Let's just post this on the internet and see if anybody likes it. Well, people like it. And that got, there's a demand for, for these types of experiences that are a lot more fun and engaging and curious and much more human um, than, than the stuff that's kind of being pushed down from the top. So that's where I was, I was getting at. So like, by doing quick little experiments like that, that was a you know, I don't know three or four hour project. We can <laughs> you can discover things that people really respond to in positive ways, and you can also find out what they're going to reject. You know, like I don't think there's a lot of like a lot of AI is it's what I call nagware. It's like it just nags you. It's like, oh, do you really want to eat that ice cream? Why don't you eat broccoli? And it's like, nobody wants that in their life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I'm saying, still right? I mean, and this is the direction it's going down. Um, as a, yeah. 
I can, I can completely see that. Um, you know, a lot of the AI features I see lately is like, read your email, creates a to-do task for you. I was like, I don't need something to make a to-do task for me. I could do that myself if I needed to do that. Yeah. Well, it's almost I like mean, a whole, I have a whole deck the ending, on it right? if you're interested, but there's a whole lot of interesting design problems that, that occur when things make decisions for people. So it's, it's really a, fun, a fundamentally new... Um, it's a fundamental new design problem with a lot of opportunities, but we don't have a lot of we don't we don't have a whole lot of foundational work to, to look at to, to understand that how it's supposed to work. So if you think about user experience and human computer interaction, like I was saying, so if you think about something like um, like Microsoft Word or Adobe Photoshop, these programs keep on getting more and more complicated in order to give the user increasing levels of control. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I want to put the space between that period and that last letter. So there's all these features that give you unbelievable levels of control. Most people never use any of these features. But when you're using the product, you feel like you have the ability to do everything that you want to do. And mm-hmm. when you start to add AI to that, it's the opposite. So you're actually giving up control. You're saying, I want more convenience. You know, make make me here's 10 pictures, make me a web page that shows my kid's birthday party to my family. Just do that for me. Mm-hmm. So you're going to give up maybe some control over the colors and the, the GIF animations or whatever it is, you're giving up control. And that's a, that's a whole new area for user experience design to start dealing with, working with because it's the, it's the exact inverse of the direction that we've been going in terms of making tools, right? <laughs> interesting concept right no totally is totally and then there's another issue where they appear to be alive <laughs> yeah well, yeah there's some there's some uh pretty cool stuff out there and some some of it kind of creeps me out too like some of the robots and everything like that so it was a little too real <laughs> well part of that creep factor has to do and this is another interesting thing so when, when things start to appear alive we need to very quickly as a human as a this species to that species is we need to determine if it's friend or foe very quickly. What's our relationship to this other thing that's alive? And our tools aren't alive. Our tools are under our control. and We have an, a fixed and known relationship to the tools that we use. So it's a whole different, at a psychological level, it's in a whole different place. And, you know, I mean, these, these things are real easy to test as well. You know, if, uh, you know, if I've got my... Uh, I've got my device here. I, I think I understand what's going to happen. I can hold it and I can turn it on. If I need to, I can turn it on. But if it's just sitting there and all of a sudden it comes on and starts talking to me and starts rolling around. <laughs> starts ordering a pizza for you. <laughs> oh, especially if it starts moving. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then we're dealing, it's a species to species interaction. And I need to decide, if, is that threatening or is it? Is it lovely? Um, is it reassuring? Is it comforting? Is it scary? Is it freaking me out? And that's that creep factor that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's creeping me out. And so, you know, this is another thing. So the industry right now is really focused on this idea of assistance, right? But I don't see a huge demand for people that want assistance. However, uh, what I do see a big demand for, and with this concept of inventing new species we love pets, and so it's real interesting to look at our relationship to pets and start using 
the way that we interact with, with pets and plants and animals and things like that as design principles as we're making these new products. Why? Why? Uh, why do we think it's cute when the when the cat jumps up on our keyboard and makes a mess? And <laughs> but what we do, you know, we 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 love cats. We hate spiders. Why do we hate spiders? <laughs> I can say many people hate spiders, which is really irrational. Um, so it's this type of thinking that's going to have to happen. And this is again, this is where the people like are and Disney, and especially the cartoon makers, they have an edge. They understand these things. How to make creatures and personalities that are lovable or hateable. Or, um, understanding motion and ways of speaking. That's why I think they have they have the advantage. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure if I would assign. Um, it's sort of like you know assigning an IT project to make a hit movie or something. Yeah, that's asking for disaster. <laughs> Well, if if you if you do that, you get the TV show from from uh, England called the IT Crowd. That's that's what you get. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> but it's it's really interesting because there are these different cultures, you know, and um, and I think this whole obsession on assistance is going to look really silly over time as well. It's not. I don't know. Would, would people rather have a friend or an assistant? I think they'd rather have a friend, and that's just my guess. It's a valid point. That's kind of how I feel about them. You know, it's kind of like when I see these Samsung fridges that have a tablet on them and has a camera so I can see what's inside of it. Yeah. It's like I can see what's inside of my fridge just by opening the door. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need an app to, <laughs> to because I'm too lazy to hand put my hand on the door and open it and see what's in there. <laughs> so does that mean that the digital assistant is going to go the way of the mullet? It's going to be like the technological equivalent of a mullet in, in the next few years here. Yeah, I, I, like, I can go with that metaphor. I don't know. It never goes out of style, you know. So, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it might be. No, but it's actually. I think it's all the way it's presented. So when you talk about ways that you don't think of that as an assistant, right? It's a, it's a tool, right? It doesn't come on and say, "Hi, I'm your I'm your driving assistant." <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. So, and so with a lot of these things, it's really about just creating experiences that people actually like, right? I mean, Uber Uber isn't your personal transportation system, but it sure can be useful. And that's another example of where, like, the logistics involved with that probably involves some level of AI. Um, but we don't need to know about that necessarily because it delivers a, a decent quality experience. Brian, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on board. Nick, do we have... Uh... Any parting questions from you as we kind of wrap things up? I just have one question I've been asking everybody. has nothing to do with AI or anything in general. Is there any book um, you know, that's had a big influence on you or a piece of media or anything like that at all that you want to share with anybody? Sure. Emotional Design by Don Norman. Um, that's uh, it's probably been 15 or 20 years now, but uh, it's, a, it's an incredible book. And Don Norman is an amazing designer. Anything by Don Norman, you can find him on uh, on YouTube, but specifically emotional design. And that's the only book that I assign to every single class that I teach. It's under, understanding design, not necessarily as a, a solving problems, but understanding people's emotional responses and interactions with objects and experiences. No, it sounds like an interesting read. I'm definitely going to have to pick that up myself. It, yeah, it's it's the one. And it's, it's a light read. It's not a long book. <laughs> Brian, no, I'm not scared of big books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
<laughs> I, I just uh, never mind. I'll skip that. <laughs> Brian, where can folks find out more about you and some of the work that you're involved in? Uh, so my main website is BrianCane.net. Um, I have these two videos, which I'll send to you after this, mm-hmm. outline a little bit more in depth some of the ideas that uh, that I've been talking about and some of the opportunities. So if I can leave it on one thing is that I think it's a great time for, uh, for entrepreneurs to try to get into this market. I think it's like, I think it's a really great garage inventing time again, um, that there's uh, um, like really fantastic opportunities, entrepreneur or even a non-entrepreneur as well, for people to start getting hands-on with this stuff. And from my perspective, the most interesting things I think we're going to see in the next three to five years are probably going to be these oddball creations that people did on their own and in a small way. That's my, my prediction. So it's a good time to get started. That's great. That's a perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much for your time today, Brian. Really appreciate you uh, being willing to join us for some of this discussion. Oh, one more thing. Sure. Go for it. Put creatives on the project. That's the last thing I'll say. So you were talking earlier about IT projects. Mm-hmm. And I always talk about doing things creatively, but then the, the project always gets done by technical people. Hey, you were not good at design. <laughs> if you haven't okay, figured it out by now. Put the designer, put the designer, let the, you know, put the designer as a project owner. They don't have to be the whole owner. Maybe maybe it's 50-50 design and engineering. Let them jointly let them jointly own the project. Make sure that the the creative is involved because that, that slips through the cracks a lot on corporate projects. And at this point I feel like it's a strategic edge. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. You, you, uh, I, I've, I've got a, uh, presentation that I've created myself called why it needs creative sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And people. I want to thank everyone for listening today and thank, thank Brian Kane for coming on and giving us a great interview. We're going to go ahead and post everything that Brian Kane mentioned um, in the show notes. That's the link to his slides, the uh, link to the original tweet with the uh, big mouth Billy Bass, which he's probably most known for, and to the book that he mentioned. If you could go ahead and subscribe to our show, if you're liking us, go ahead and leave a review. Let us know how we're doing. You can also uh, shoot us any comments or suggestions you have to info at lead.exe. Again, I'm Nick Lozano, joined by my co-host, Brian Comerford. Thanks for listening.